Thank you very much. You did a very good job with that reading. I'm going to ask you to bow in a word of prayer with me as we just move into the word. Lord, I just pray that you would open the eyes of our heart right now. I pray your spirit would just saturate our hearts and our thoughts. And we welcome your presence. We welcome you as we get into your word. Words of life that bring light and life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reading today is Christ's own description of the, the day of judgment. And I think it's a time for us to kind of calm our spirits and take off our shoes, so to speak, because we're, we're treading on holy ground moving into a text like this. This is a very challenging uh, piece of scripture, I think largely because the popular culture calls the good news fake news and rejects the idea that God will really hold people accountable for their lives and the decisions that they make. Our text finds us with Jesus on the Mount of Olives three days before he's going to be crucified. And he gives the last sermon projecting into the future when he returns as the royal and the universal judge. And the passage is often gets called a parable, but it's not really that. It's just a straightforward judgment scene similar to those in Old Testament visions of the day of the Lord or something that we would find in the book of Revelation. And it really begs the question about what constitutes readiness. The, the big idea I want you to hold in your hand so that you don't forget this, because this is the most important thing we'll find as we move through this text, is that Jesus identifies with his people, and ministering to the needy in the family of God is evidence that we're actually expressing the life of Jesus that is within us. That's the big idea. But I want you now, as we move into the text, to envision all humanity, present and past, from every nation and us, gathered in front of Jesus and looking into his eyes. And verse 31 takes us there. It says, And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. The disciples are sitting around hearing Jesus say this, and they were familiar with this language. It's the Old Testament echoes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. As it, Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 32, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. We're not too familiar with that. But in the Middle East, uh, sheep and goats were often pastured together. They still are, actually, for those who do this. Uh, and, it, you know, at the end of the day, these mixed flocks would come together and they would separate them, some for milking and some to leave the sheep who are more hardier out and to bring the less hardy goats indoors. But it's interesting that the word the word for goats here is the word uh, used for a young goat, uh, a kid, as opposed to a full-grown goat. And the word choice, I think, is strategic. I'm just bringing it out because the young goats were the ones that were separated off for slaughter. So it's a very, very select choice of words. Theologians tell us that 70% of the Old Testament references to, with using this word goats are in association for sin sacrifice and a scapegoat. So the idea of sin symbolically being removed from the community is deeply embedded in this statement. 
And he says in verse 33 that he will put the sheep on the right, that is the place of favor, and the goats on his left, the place of disfavor. Verse 34, then the king, Jesus calls himself a king on the eve of the humiliation of the crucifixion, then the king will say to those on his right, come. That means welcome. That means rest. That means joy. Come, you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance. Right? The gift because of the relationship with Jesus. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. These are basic human needs, right? And I was a stranger and you invited me in. This is hospitality. And I needed clothes and you clothed me. And I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus lists these six kinds of works all the fruit and evidence of salvation. But we should stop for a minute and ask the question, are we saved by our works? Now, this is an evangelical church. Our fast answer should be no, right? Because we are saved by grace. The infilling of the Holy Spirit expresses himself through our actions. So the text is not talking about the root of salvation, but it deals with the fruit of salvation. And then there's a question that comes out of the believers in this text. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? I want you to pay attention to a couple of words as I go through these verses. The words when and see. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The word see is, is important because clearly Jesus has disguised himself here as we read the text like this. Compassion on the suffering doesn't help happen without seeing. And Jesus is watching if we will see the need before us and respond with compassion. And what I find unique here is they didn't think the things they had done actually deserved any fanfare because the sheep help people. That's what the sheep do. And Jesus is watching and to, to see this. Uh, sheep live out their identity in loving God and loving people. The people of God look like the people of God. This is this idea here. And Jesus, in his own time on earth, Jesus absolutely had compassion on those who were sick and in poverty, but the chief concern was to draw people into a relationship with God and deal with sin. So when we are, we are walking with Jesus, the focus is on being. It's not on keeping track and notches, writing some notches or stuff like that or something that might happen, how many people did we visit this week and stuff like that. Something automatic is actually happening and that's why focusing on our relationship with Jesus is so very, very important. If we will just walk with him, we will look back and be surprised that our life has been a series of God-ordained meetings with people and individuals. Well, in verse 40, it says that the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers, 
let's add in sisters, as many translations try to help us with, of mine, you did it for me. It's interesting that one of the criteria that we'll be focused on will be the way that people have treated the least. It's mentioned twice in this particular section, verse 40 and verse 45. Now, for Protestants, I think, um, a text like this has historically been an embarrassment because the passage is tied up with a person's final destiny, eternal life, and eternal punishment. And verse 46 practically looks like that depends on acts of philanthropy. That's hard to say this morning. I don't know why. More coffee. Anyway, as if a humanitarian ethic and works of kindness are grounded in eternal salvation. Now, just a minute. Step back. Let's remind ourselves, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and, and 9 tell us that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ and not good works. Okay? We need to center ourselves in that. This passage fully expresses that when Jesus returns, he will repay every person according to what they have done. That's chapter 16, verse 27. Now, is Jesus saying that, just think about those people who are on my team, just Christians? No, he's not. Luke chapter 6 tells us to love our enemies, do good to those who mistreat you, so forth. Care for people in general. That's, that's the idea. But perhaps this is a good time for us to review it's a good time for us to review in thinking about those who were not in the family of God. If we are sharing God's heart regarding the, the marginalized, regarding strangers, visitors, the sick, perhaps it's a good time for us to review how we take opportunity to serve and love people right under our nose in work contexts, especially where we spend most of our time, but there are other places too. It's a good time for us to review whether we help people who don't deserve it. I know that was the hardest one. If these things seem remote, this is a good chance for us, actually, in looking at a text, to see into the heart of God for the broken in our communities. What does it look like to reflect God in our communities? I'm going to draw from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 to 10 to give us a little help. It says, To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away your own flesh from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. Now, because all people are made in the image of God, there is a value in showing care. Life is a gift from God. It, it, it is sacred. So for those disciples sitting around on the Mount of Olives while Jesus is telling this in his last sermon, it's not new information to help the poor. The Old Testament had made that very clear. Think about Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. The person who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, that verse says. So it's important to pay attention to wherever God has placed us. Absolutely. But let's not be distracted with the idea that what we're reading about here is about social welfare. Not to diminish other texts to be generous to the poor, but this section actually is not about that. Let me just move into talking about the family of God. You may hear secular culture talk about keeping your poor relations and needy family at a distance. But this, this is really, um, let's not be distracted with that. This is not how Jesus speaks of the poor and of the sick. 
and the needy in the family of God. He doesn't shut them out or he doesn't disown them. In verses 40 and 45, it mentions brothers and the least of these. Who are these? They are a subgroup. Brothers, the Greek word adelphus, uh, is one that many people have argued over. Some people say, oh, well, this is talking about how we treat Israel, or this is how we, how, uh, talking about how we treat missionaries or pastors or messengers of Christ. Well, Matthew chapter 12, verse 50 tells us, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. In fact, you, you could, we could just spend more time in Matthew chapter 12 and, and 23 and 28, and he calls Christ's followers brothers. In other words, God really cares about the suffering of his people, of brothers. Jesus identifies with his church. When Paul, uh, Saul was on the road to Damascus, you know, he was persecuting the church and persecuting the body of Christ. And that's why Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What was new in this section was the instruction to help Jesus' family. The center of interpretation and turning point of this section of Scripture is not about being charitable. The point of this text is that Jesus identifies with his people. And this section of Matthew especially focuses on how we treat those in whom the presence of God indwells. They have been needy. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 reminds us, therefore, as we have opportunity, of course, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the household of faith, the family of believers. And the reference to the least of these in, in this connection connects with Matthew 10, 20, 42, where it says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to, those, to one of these little ones who is my disciples, that person will not lose their reward. So it is especially Christ's followers who, are, who, who represent Christ. This is what this is referring to. And it has a special focus on relationships within the faith family. Uh, more specifically, it is any brother or sister of Jesus that Jesus himself is served. And it is that service that shows how one responds to Jesus himself. The least of these brothers can also be read as the least important of Christ's brethren, if you want to put it that way. Think about those. Who, who do people classify as the least important in the family of God? Well, think about that. Let me, let me ask you to do something right now. Look, look to your left and your right. Go ahead and do it. Look to your left and your right. We are the sheep with, in whom is Christ's presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Every car ride given, every cup of tea or bubble tea or coffee shared, every sick person visited, every imp imprisoned person set free from bondage or addictions or whatever. This is why we are here. Christ hangs out with the needy and we never know when or where we're going to encounter God. Verse, verse 35, I think, could also be read, I was full of anxiety, and you listened to me without checking your iPhone. I was a struggling mom, and you offered me a free night off. I was lonely, and you shook my hand, and you invited me out for dim sum with, your, with you guys. Uh, th 
this, this could be a really good time for us to reflect on our hospitality and our care amongst the family of God right here. When we're talking about Advent, which typically goes into a very charitable period of time and, and people uh, think about these things more, but this is not just talking about Advent. This is really talking about a lifestyle. And when we help people associated with Jesus, it can be said to be done to Jesus. How, how people respond to Jesus as representatives is both a sign of their attitude towards Jesus and evidence of faith is in caring for Christ's brethren. And that is a testimony to the world. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. Can that be said of this house? Now, verses 41 to 42, Jesus moves further. And he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you, I'm interjecting a little bit, you coldly gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger, and you coldly did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Verse 44, and they will answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Verse 45, he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Well, in the first century, of course, the least of these, there's a couple, there's some two different ways of looking at this. I mean, it could have ranged from the children and the women who could easily wind up uh, in very vulnerable circumstances, persecuted believers. There's so many things that could go on. In the 21st century, I think that the... Uh, uh, the list could be expanded, uh, you know, uh, to the unborn, to mental health. Uh, I mean, my point being that the faces of the least changes all the time, right? But it's the sin of omission, the failure to see. And the tone here uh, in these verses is one of surprise in the failure to do right or in doing nothing. I remember asking uh, one young man who was in med school in the congregation I was working with, I uh, said, uh, what stood out the most for you when you were working in, in the uh, downtown area? Um, he was working at an injection site and helping out at that time. And he said, you know, Matt, he says, what, what stood out to me was how many people stated that they believe in God. Uh, that insight is on a collision course with a text like this. I'm not even going to unpack it. I'm just going to say it. Notice that Jesus doesn't judge what they thought what they thought. Yes, the failure to provide humanitarian aid does get assessed, I think, as a spiritual evil, but Jesus judges what they did, and it was nothing. Nothing. Can we get over doing nothing bearing the name of Christian, bearing the name of Christ follower? And again, I want to emphasize that our Lord is not teaching that people will be condemned because they have not been charitable to the poor and the needy, or that they will be saved if they're generous and open-handed. That's not what this is about. He does mean that ministering to his needy brothers and sisters demonstrates love to Christ 
and is evidence of fruit that we are recipients of God's grace. Let me say this, that all of our future actually depends upon our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, is are we taking it lightly, the neglect of care to care for the needy, our needy brethren? Is, I have no idea what's going on here. Honestly, God, nobody's told me nothing. But is there a crisis of, of visitation? Is there a crisis of hospitality? Is, is, there, is there a lot a lot of needs that aren't being addressed? I have to, I have deep questions in my heart because such a text as this is being read this morning here on Triumph Street. Unselfish care for others is a mark of, of true discipleship. Sins of omission indicate a heart that is lacking in the Spirit's work of transformation. This is, this is where this, this brings us. Well, anyway, let's go into verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I, I want to conclude the rest of the time I have this morning to focus especially on verse 35, the statement that says, I was a stranger. Um, Barbara Taylor Brown has a book titled An Altar in the World. I recommend it to anybody here. You can pick it up on Amazon in a heartbeat. But she writes a chapter titled The Practice of Encountering Others. And in that chapter, she argues that Jesus was trying to teach us the practice of encounter. And the problem uh, for us is that who has time, right? That's our problem. We're busy people. And one clear observation about Jesus when we read through the New Testament is he did not limit his interactions to people who looked or acted or thought like him. There was the Roman centurion. There was the, the you know, the, all of these various people from all kinds of, they weren't Jewish, let's put it that way. That's all I want to say. I won't go through the list. You, you're familiar with the Gospels. But he was concerned, He being, Jesus was concerned because they were made in the image of God and they needed a revelation of God. And in the Bible, the practice of encounter often shows up as the practice of hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is philo-xenia. Philo is one of the Greek words for love and xenia means stranger. When you put them together, uh, it means the love of stranger. The word that we use in English uh, to that word is hospitality. Uh, therefore, uh, I mean, this is really counter, about as counterintuitive as you can get, I would say, actually. For most of us, uh, xenophobia, or the fear of stranger, comes much more naturally, I would say. That's, that's our natural disposition. According to Jonathan Sachs, he's the chief rabbi of Great Britain, he's commented that the Hebrew Bible, that, talking about the Old Testament, commands in one verse, you should love your neighbor as yourself, but in more than 36 places commands us to love the stranger. Isn't that intriguing? Why should we do that? We should do that because we have been strangers ourselves, actually. In fact, if we've never been strangers, that's because we've never left home. And that's another problem. They call that being agoraphobic, okay, or agoraphobia, right? So why should you show love to a stranger? Well, there's really two, two very good reasons. One is first because you know what it's like to be a stranger yourself. We know what it's like to be a stranger ourselves. And second, because the stranger shows us God. You think about it. Abraham and Sarah encountered God when they welcomed three strangers into their tent. Isn't it intriguing? Jacob encounters God when he stays up all night wrestling with a stranger. Hmm? 
God sends Elijah to the widow in Sidon. Uh, God sent Elisha to heal a leper in Syria. Very interesting. So why should we show love to the stranger? Because God does. And we're to look like God. Hospitality became a virtue in the early church. Now what might this actually look like? Well, how about I was new in Canada and you showed me around town? Something like that, right? A problem in our time is this unhealthy focus on differences. Again, I'm going to draw from uh, Rabbi Sachs. He commented, he says, The supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in one who is not in our image, for only then can we see past our own reflections in the mirror to the God we did not make up. I want to ask a few final questions. Who are the needy here, this church, this community? What am I able to do to give others a voice and to be supportive? Are we more concerned with being served and being the top dog? How do you spot a real Christian? Well, they, they unselfishly, unconsciously serve. And Jesus will say, you did it for me. And that's how we're to work for Jesus. Some last final comments. I really see in this text, and I've wept over this text. This morning I wept over this text, just the profundity of it. But I see in this text a call to pay attention to where God has placed us to see the face of Christ in the needy. Now, let's ask a really good question. Why did Jesus include this section in his final sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to suggest, because now we can ask, is there real evidence in my life of a real faith? This is a haunting text. By the idea that the needy person or the lonely person in, this, in one of these pews or the homeless beggar that I pass by is Christ himself, and I didn't even look. I'm going to ask you to bow your head, please. Let's ask God for strength, the strength that we need to serve using the eyes of faith. Almighty God, I pray you open our eyes. Help us to see you, Jesus. We sometimes abstract that. But help us to see you in the needy amongst us. Not only in the family of God, Lord. We know your text is talking about that. But beyond that, open our eyes, Lord. I pray. Thank you for your word. Bless it to wisdom in our life. Bless it to action in our life. Bless it to honoring your name, I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Oh,